go. Hello, Trayton. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> good, good. I'm very excited to record this episode with you. Um, I think this is a really interesting topic. And I'm excited for everyone to learn as much as I'm going to today. Okay, so how about we start with um, introduce yourself, tell us about your experience, your research qualifications, your interest in this topic, and give us an intro to the topic too. Sure. No, no worries. All right. Yes. No, I am Trey. I am Miranda's prey cousin, the best prey cousin. Um I am just, I just finished up my, yeah, I guess it would be an honors bachelor of commerce in supply chain management and international business, as well as a political studies certificate in global studies. My long-winded way of saying that I've been in school for five years for my undergrad, at least so far, um, that thankfully is finished up in terms of my research though, I did my honors thesis, I guess you want to call it that honors project on how Saskatchewan organizations view climate change focusing really on supply chain impacts, you know, what they're doing about those impacts to their supply chains, adaptation, mitigation, and what some of the possible consequences could be, you know, security or, or vulnerability impacts, you know, just societal shocks in general. But really, I guess when, when people ask me what I'm interested in and things that I study, it's, you know, my interest tend to be very broad just because these topics are very broad. Is I like I like to say that I'm a person that likes to figure out, you know, why things go wrong and, and what to do about it. You know, I like supply chains because they connect everything. But a lot more of my focus these days is on, you know, disruptions, risk management, emergency management, kind of that stuff in general, looking at those wicked or, or super wicked problems like climate change um, through a security lens in some sort, which I guess is problematic in, in some senses, but we can get into that too as well if you want to. Um, so that's, that's, that's me. That's my last kind of two years of really tailoring my undergrad degree. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's the research and that's me, I guess. Well, congratulations on finishing your undergrad. I'm excited for the next chapter. That's that's really awesome. Uh, so with your interest, let's kind of break it down of, um, say we're going to be talking about how like climate change impacts. We're going to be talking about climate change impacts on the supply chain. So let's break that down and start with the basics what is a supply chain? So a supply chain, that's a, I mean, that's a really good one. I'd probably define it as the, there's a, let me start to say there's a lot of definitions out there. So I'd probably mm -hmm. define it myself as the people, processes, technology, and knowledge that combines to create, produce, store, transport, and deliver goods and services. Um, you know, of course, that definition probably misses a lot of nuance of things involved, but I think it, it tries to capture all those different elements that are involved. But we can, you know, let's talk examples, right? So supply mm -hmm. chains start right from the base level of, you know, a commodity production. So that's your your oil, your wheat, your your corn or your maize, your your potash. You know, if there's a global commodity market for it, that's basically what I'm talking about with quantities. But, you know, let's continue with oil for a second here, seeing as I mean, we're talking about climate change a little bit. We can't not talk about oil. Yeah. Most people mm -hmm. think about oil as an energy source, you know, rightfully so. It has byproducts of gasoline and jet fuel and natural gas to some extent, you know, methane, whatever you want to call it there. But, I mean, oil is a foundation with much of our, you know, plastic in the world. I, I don't know the exact number, but I mean, all, of, you know, a good chunk of oil goes towards plastic creation. And I mean, obviously, we know plastics are incredibly harmful, but they have also been, you know, incredibly useful for creating the modern society we have today. So, you know, we start with oil. 
oil is brought up of, of, of the ground or the bottom of the ocean, whatever you want to call it. And then it's, you know, transported by truck, rail, pipeline to be refined and manufactured into whatever product we desire. So oils, gasoline, jet fuel, plastics, asphalt, whatever. And then you'll stay with plastics here. Because plastics are coming from these facilities, <laughs> this is a little side note here, um, you know, many petrochemical facilities in the, the, I think it's Louisiana, in Louisiana there's a river, it's, you know, heartfeltly known by its term, Cancer Alley. wonder if there's any connections there between fossil fuel and cancers. Um, but those big creations of plastic, you know, are, those, those, those are created at these petrochemical facilities, often in like a, a beaded form where they're, you know, they can be then melted down once they get to a destination. So they're transported to another destination for further refinement and then melded, molded down into whatever plastic device toy that we need. And then those finished goods are again, mm-hmm. transported from country to country, wherever they're being sold, you know, with whatever other inputs. So if it's a, I mean, think of it, if it's a computer, you know, maybe I mean, there could be thousands of computers in a, on a pallet of these of computers, I guess. Each one of those computers uses mm-hmm. plastics, um, metals, rare earths, you know, lithium, things like that. That all comes together to create that computer. Then it's put together with hundreds of more computers, loaded onto a pallet. Then multiple pallets are loaded into, you know, a, a sea can, a, a sea container you see in those big container ships. And then, you know, those are loaded on by very, very skilled labor in ports. Well, then loaded onto these big ships and then shipped, you know, around the world over two weeks to a destination and then unloaded by again skilled labor and heavy machinery moved to storage processed to a warehouse or distribution center you know put on another pallet broken down whatever they need to do loaded onto another truck delivered to a store or, mm-hmm. or somewhere for people to shop at or you know online or maybe to a to a last mile like delivery distribution point like a canada post or fedex whatever you want to say yeah so i mean every single thing that i just touched on there and i know that was a lot that's all mm-hmm. your supply chain i mean everything in there is supply chain everything there is supply chain management right from making sure that you know procurement the procurement department of a company knows what they need to purchase in terms of commodities to create you know something to purchase for oil in, in order to create these plastics at these petrochemical facilities in order to you know have enough plastics to create all these computers and devices that we need these days mm-hmm. so i mean that, i mean that's a quick rundown example of what a supply chain is but i mean it's a very small example so you think about how many types of you know computers are available <laughs> i mean maybe yeah. not right now but that's that's related to supply <laughs> chains but let alone yeah. the many other kinds of goods that are available and you know, we're not even talking about the supply chains that are available to ensure goods are available for services to operate like how do you run a hotel how do you run a restaurant right. things like that you know you can have some of these these massive container ships that hold essentially twenty thousand of these 20 foot equivalent units and you know they never stop operating. I mean, they're always going. I mean, if they're if they're at standstill, I mean the companies are losing money. But I mean they're always yeah. going. So you think about those ships. I mean, let alone the ports and all these examples. Seeing how much of our global trade passes through these seaports. You know, the, I think it's yeah, the port of Shanghai would be the busiest port in the world. Probably around fifty million, just under fifty million of these twenty foot equivalent units in twenty twenty one. I think yeah, wow. it's incredible. The scale you can't even imagine, right? The yeah. The port of, I think, it, like LA, Long Beach handled 20 million, so less than half. Vancouver, which is Canada's busiest and probably biggest port, actually, by size, handled mm. like 3 million of these 20 foot equivalent units. So that's, I mean, there's so much discrepancy, obviously. But you yeah, look at Vancouver yeah. and, like, you think Vancouver's busy, and then times that by, you know, 12, 15, and you're looking at the port of Shanghai, and it's just like, it's ridiculous, wow. right? So I'm just going to continue here because I got, and there's so much here, but, 
just lastly, this is where, you know, kind of that fun stuff comes in thinking about, you know, that size and the scope we're talking about here. There's, there's hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of different seaports, some big, some small, some, you know, can only handle one, one container at a time, right? Some can handle, you know, 30 or 40 going off simultaneously. You have numerous cargo ships at all times plodding along in the oceans, you know, the Suez Canal, which you know, we had a disruption a year ago, um, the, Pan- the Panama Canal, which is vital to world trade, you know, oil production, commodity production, thousands of factories around the world, millions, if not billions of workers involved in all this. And then this is where I come in and it's like, now imagine if something goes wrong at any of those points, right? You have labor shortages, you have strikes, which I mean, I would argue are probably good. I mean, worker power is great. Uh, pandemics, obviously, climate change driven weather events, which is something that, you know, we've already dealt with and we're seeing sea level rise. Um, very, very important one for ports because they're built at certain levels of the sea. And if it rises, they can no longer be ports. There's a, I don't have the study in front of me, but there was a really important study on this kind of stuff done. And, you know, sea level rise is important for these ports to look at, but even just with the temperature of some of the water rising due to climate change in the oceans, there's actually more corrosion at these ports and requiring more maintenance and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like billions and millions of dollars of repairs that nobody wants to fork out any money for. So it's, it's fascinating, but it's kind of scary at the same time. Uh, then there's, I mean, terrorism. I mean, obviously, I mean, if you have something happen, these things can, things go wrong very quickly. I mean, you name it. Like that's, that's what I look at in study. So like basically what happens when, what goes wrong, when, what happens when things go wrong and how does the world deal with it? Yeah. And I think as, I mean, as consumers, like you laying all that out there as consumers, as a consumer, personally, I'm only really thinking about the last three steps, maybe when I place the order and then it gets shipped to me through Canada Post, you know, like you really forget about all of these steps that come before that to ensure that what you're ordering is in the distribution center, in the distribution center. So absolutely. Well, yeah, I think it's really interesting when you lay it all out that way. And yeah, we just forget about all the steps that come previously and how the climate's impacting it. And it's only going to continue to impact it. It's not something that's just going to end. Like we're going to keep dealing with these events uh, as we move forward. So it's really something that is important and should be on all of our minds. Definitely. I mean, it's, there's a lack, I mean, it's actually a big problem for, for, you know, society writ large is there's a lack of a line of sight into a lot of these things. I mean, Mm -hmm. you just mentioned as a consumer, you don't really know where your goods are coming from. I mean, there's ways you can find out and try and figure it out. But I mean, think about you go to a, you go to a restaurant, you have a meal, your meal is probably coming from probably two, three, maybe 10 different countries all put together, mm-hmm. whether it's the spices, the, you know, the, the lettuce leaves on your salad or whatnot, right. like it's all coming from different places, all put together at a certain time with the right people, the right processes, all to make sure that you can have, you know, a Caesar salad and, you know, a chicken Parmesan <laughs> or something, you know, yeah. fantastic meal, but you don't really understand that, you know, this stuff is being shipped thousands of kilometers just so you can have a meal in your restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the size thing is so interesting about the port sizes that, and I mean, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but our Vancouver is compared to, to Shanghai. That's such a big difference. And so you think about how, when the Shanghai one is impacted, okay, well, what's that's going to do a lot for the rest of the world, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we're seeing that, I don't know if it's still going on. I would imagine it is. It's, you know, there's a lot to keep track of with global supply chains, but a few weeks ago when, I mean, still COVID is obviously a thing 
And China has been really, you know, proactive in trying to deal with it in a that COVID mm-hmm. zero kind of way. But I mean, they're they're locking down, you know, major parts of, you know, uh, the ports in Shanghai, major parts of the Shanghai the city itself. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that has knock on effects. I mean, there was a, I wish I could find it. There was a map of just the the hundreds of these massive container ships just sitting outside Shanghai waiting to be processed. I mean, there was that in Long Beach, LA, Vancouver with the pandemic, because there's more and more good demand, right? Yeah. But Shanghai is just a whole nother level because you not only have goods going in from different parts of the, the world, but you have a lot of goods coming out and shipping to different parts of the world, right? So mm-hmm. and then, I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it. We go back and start looking at how climate change affects all this, and it's just incredible. And, and again, you, it's tough to understand how it's going to impact that, but I guess that's mm-hmm. that's why I'm kind of here and, and what I do, what I do, I guess. Yes, exactly. So let's get into that a little bit. How... Maybe we can just define climate change really quickly first, and then we can go into how like would, does, or could climate change impact these supply chains. I know we touched on it a bit, but absolutely, yeah, absolutely. No, this is my this is one of my this is my favorite topic to talk about. (laughs) Amazing. So so climate change in general, I'll you know I'll be super brief here, but this is kind of I kind of pieced together a few different definitions to put this together, but. Long-term, climate change is long-term shifts in temperatures, atmospheric temperatures, basically, and weather patterns. They play off each other, obviously, but climate change is not weather. It impacts weather, but not weather. Important clarification. Some of these shifts may be natural, and I mean, we can fully admit this. I mean, there's changes in the solar cycle that do happen, but Mm -hmm. in modern usage, climate change refers to the warming of the atmosphere because of the greenhouse gas effect, essentially trapping carbon and methane and other emissions in Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. which causes our atmosphere to warm, shifting weather patterns in an untold number of directions, causing greater and more frequent storms, things like that, you know, hotter temperatures, heat waves, anything you can imagine basically can be traced back to some sort of climate shift based in the last 20 years and probably projected forward to the next 50. Whether or not it's accurate, I mean, that's, I guess, remains to be seen because the future is always tough to predict, but... Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, it involves rising temperatures, extreme weather events, rising sea levels due to those melting glaciers that we love so dearly, <laughs> um, migratory patterns with people, animals, etc. Like, there's so many things here that all come together. And it really, I mean, when you talk, when I talk about climate change a lot, I'm less concerned about the science because the science to me, I mean, it's it's settled, right? It's 99.9% right. of the, the scientific articles agree that climate change is being is occurring because of human, you know, human activities. Yes. What I really try to focus on with a lot of my research and, and especially that kind of security element of it is how is this affecting like human security? So how does this affect like food, water, shelter, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things that, you know, we need to not be stressed and to live a good life. Um, so a little bit more focused on like that migratory patterns and, and how it affects people's stress levels, things like that. Right. Anyways, that's climate change. Very okay, briefly, amazing. That's climate yeah. change. I'm, I'm pretty Perfect. sure. I mean, your, your listeners understand what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I just I like to, you know, make sure people know the basics Absolutely. because I feel like too, there's a lot of nuances, especially with like, maybe people think that climate change is the actual weather. You know what I mean? So I think that, uh, it's good to just lay it out there. So thank you for that great description. For sure. Now, let's move on to the 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 bread and butter here, the how, you know, would could how does climate change impact supply chains? How will it, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a few things I want to start with here though, kind of some definitions just to set this up. Okay. So first of all, many in again, those kind of adjusted oriented studies in more of that emergency management field, 
really dislike the term natural disaster, and I don't like it either. Okay. So I want I want to you know preface our conversation a little bit here with that because there's there's natural weather events, and uh, then mm. there's human induced you know human classified disasters. There's no such thing as a, a natural disaster. Disasters are you know due to humans being in a region, to the systems we've set up or, or haven't set up for that matter, and how we choose to respond to things, right? Right. So a you know a a tsunami or an earthquake or whatever in, in Haiti or in Canada or, or whatever isn't a disaster per se because there's land there or whatever. It's a disaster because there's humans and there's lives and there's things that we've set up and and buildings and, and foundations of, of society that we have set up there. Mm-hmm. That's what creates the disaster. Like weather events have always and, and will always occur. Our, our preparation, mitigation, adaptation, how we choose to progress as society sets us up for disaster. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just really think that's a key thing to hammer home here. I mean, many of the effects of climate change can be stopped with you know, mitigation or stunted with adaptation and cause and with those kinds of things can cause a lot less misery and death and, and migration and things like that. And, but we just, you know, we have to change and change the political systems to get us there. And I mean, I mm-hmm. guess, I guess those political systems will change. I guess it just depends on which way, like, do we want right. progressive and proactive policies or, or more kind of that, that far right and reactionary look at things. So I know which one I want, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's, uh, that's, I think that's something really to set up is natural disasters. There's no such thing as a natural disaster. There is disasters mm-hmm. and there are natural weather events, but there's no such thing as a natural disaster, right? It's not like, you know, creating something I love to study is you look at the design of cities, right? Mm-hmm. And flooding so often happens in cities because we have these massive swaths of asphalt for cars to drive on. You know, we have right. a lot less walkable areas with parks and things like that. If we did, the water kind of just sits in the grass or the, the flowers and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it floods, but it's yeah, it's water, right? It's going to flood. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have water running on asphalt, it just kind of sits there. It doesn't, it's not yeah. porous. It doesn't go in anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's that point. That's, that's very interesting. I like that you clear, like, I, I never really thought about it that way. So that's, re- that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's such a, I mean, I had that kind of figure that out and, and discovered that, I guess, within the last year or so. There's a, mm-hmm. a emergency management researcher. Um, I forget where she is studying, but she's a uh, Dr. Samantha Monsanto. She writes a newsletter called Disasterology, I think. And she's really focused on that, that justice kind of study of emergency management. I find it fascinating. Really cool. Yeah. But anyway, so my second kind of preface here is I just really find that that interplay between climate and supply chain is so interesting, both because they suffer from the same bias, you know, problem, whatever you want to call it, and that's time horizon. So in okay. supp- in supply chain management, the further out something is, like an event, whether it's a gray rhino or, or whatever, you want, the changes, shifts, and however it is, if it's 30 years away, the harder it is to plan for right? Okay. Yeah. The closer it is, the easier it is to navigate and, and shift strategy and things like that, right? Like if you know there's going to be a weather storm tomorrow, well, you can plan for that. You can say, oh, don't come into work or work remotely, whatever. Right. If it's 30 years away, it's like, oh, out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. And climate change is no different in that it like, it at least purports to be, I mean, we're already seeing impacts, but it purports to be this long-term issue that, right. you, know, you know, politicians, leaders, things like that don't really want to touch. It's like, well, we don't really know how it's going to affect us, right? But, I mean, we yeah. do. We have a good idea. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of my – that's my little preface there. So let's talk about how climate change can actually impact supply chains and how it is mm-hmm. impacting supply chains. Okay. So, I mean, in general, any of these kinds of shifts in climate, weather, can have documented impacts on supply chains, right? I, you know, I believe – I think it's about $2 trillion. I mean, that's and for different sources, say different numbers, but it's about $2 trillion about of impacts on our global economy due to supply chain, uh, due to climate change. 
And they're almost wow. all those, you know, that that financial impact is almost all related to supply chains in some shape or form. Um, but I'm not a finance guy, you know, whatever. Money's money. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I'll say that I'm far from an expert on this, but I do, you know, I love to study this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great tool based off of a journal paper that came out a few months ago. Um, and the tool is at myclimatefuture.info if anybody wants to go and check it out. You can just populate the variables, age, climate scenario, and location, and see some of the outcomes. And this is wow. how, I, how I just want to set this up here because – so I just did this just just a little bit of a primer. I did this, I think, yesterday or, or actually I did this in my paper. Um, so I was 22, set myself as a 22-year-old from North America and set the climate scenario to current climate promises. In my life, based on this you know, scientific – this journal article, I'll, uh, I'll experience 2.2 times more wildfires – 1.7 times more river f- flooding, two and a half times the number of crop failures, 2.9 times the amount of tropical cyclones, 7.7 times more droughts, and 26.1 times more heat waves. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, it's this incredible tool that gives, you know, those, those, what are those six different things, seven different things that really show what the impacts can be. And I just find it fascinating because, I mean, it shows you what those those changes are going to be in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And you can play with it. You know, if somebody's born today, what are they going to see? If somebody was, you know, my parents' age or my grandparents' age, what's right. the cha- what are the changes they see? And, you know, it's a fascinating tool. But really what's more interesting for it for me, you know, those numbers are scary. And we should all, you know, yeah. demand more of our institutions leaders. But what's even more scary about that is what they don't tell us. And that's, you know, our modern societies, our present day supply chains how we get goods, necessities aren't really prepared yeah. for those impacts, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about the the North America heat wave last summer um, that caused forest fires because it was so dry in, in British Columbia and parts of the United States. Right. That reduced the stability of, you know, different ridges and passes in British Columbia, which then when the rain came from the atmospheric river caused infrastructure to fail, that caused telecommunications to fail, that caused bridges and roads to be washed out, train lines um, to be gone, right? So Mm -hmm. you can't really say, oh, this is what's going to happen here. It's a combination of all these factors, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a a great study. So really focusing, moving more onto the specifics of of supply chains here. And this is going to be a little long-winded, so I just want everybody to stick with me because I I (laughs) promise it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, uh, Urcar Ale, um, state, you know, some of the challenges that businesses might face because of, you know, these broad climate change issues. And I mean, they're almost all related to supply chains here. So, um, first of all, you have supply problems of raw material resources. So if, you know, if your fields are flooding, it's hard to get maize to make your high fruit, fructose corn syrup or things like that. Right. Um, changes in customer behavior and demand. You know, if everybody is stressed out and, you know, roads are washed out, well, you can't drive, you can't buy a car. Um, relocation of production. I mean, I think we're seeing this already with, you know, sh- companies saying, you know, we can't get insurance in a certain area. We can't have a factory here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, changes in the efficiency and effectiveness of processes. That's pretty self-explanatory. Changes in product quality. I mean, I think, you know, we're already seeing that. A mm-hmm. decrease in, in labor performance. And that's a big one. And I think, you know, companies like to say, oh, you know, labor is labor. You can get anybody. But I mean, really, you think about it, if you have a heat wave I don't know, say in, in Southeast Asia, like in, in India there, like there is right now, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. You have people that, you know, if it's 47 degrees Celsius outside, how do you expect them to work? Yeah. Right. So it's, it's like, well, then you got to invest in air conditioning. You got to invest in, you know, maybe outside air conditioning. And it's like, well, how much of that adaptation is really necessary, but also possible in some of those countries. Right. Right. 
And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, you're talking about India. And, you know, it is devastating. But, like, people don't realize that so much of our, you know, in Canada, what I like, to, you know, in, in the Western world, the, the kind of term that I use is the global minority world, you know, less population, uh, but a lot of the wealthier. Mm-hmm. We rely on, you know, countries like India for a lot of our stuff, whether it's business consulting, whether it's textile production, um, you know, different foods that come from there, tea. I mean, mm-hmm. I love tea and so much tea comes from India. Is that possible mm-hmm. if there is 47 degree temperatures in the middle of May, right? Right. Um, I mean, continuing on there, I mean, you got damage or destruction of facilities, infrastructure, physical assets. You have transportation problems, destructions of markets. Like if you, if all these things are happening, can a stock exchange survive? And, and what happens if it doesn't, right? Which is a scary thought. Right. Um, decreased financial performance and, you know, decreased financial performance. There's no better illustration of that than insurance companies. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're constantly having to pay out more and more, they're just going to say, look, we can't afford this. We can't do this. We don't make any money. Whether or not you want to have a conversation or whether or not they should be allowed to make money or whatever, that's fine. That's a political question. Mm-hmm. But you're already seeing in the States where there is certain parts of the United States where insurance companies are saying, we're not insuring you. And the governments are having to come in and backstop a lot of people's houses and assets and saying, okay, we'll insure you. The, the government will insure you with this pot of money or whatever. But I mean, the question is, like, I mean, should they? Like, should people be rebuilding in some of these areas that we know are going to start on fire every single year because climate change is getting worse? Or that are so close to the the oceans that the sea will rise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw, I'm sure a lot of people here saw the video of, I think it was a house in uh, Louisiana or somewhere last week that washed away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that house sold for $300,000 in 2020. It's like, what are you, what are you, what are we doing here? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then we have climate related mortality and morbidity, obviously. Right. Changes, changes in regulations. How do we adjust our markets? How do our government step in and say, okay, we need more regulations? Um, and I'll get to that a little bit. There's some interesting developments there, but damage to reputations of companies. You know, you think about energy companies, you think about these big conglomerates and, and what they're doing. Are they making the problem worse? Right. Um, changes in energy consumption. That's maybe hopefully more of a positive one, kind of end on the positive one up here and say, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really good investments into renewable energy and things like that. I mean, it's, I forget the exact numbers, but the amount of renewable energy that is in development in the United States right now is just as much as the entire United States electricity grid at the moment. So it's you like, that's like, oh my goodness, that's weird. But it's like, holy moly, like that is a lot of electricity. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to come online, a lot of yeah. transmission that has to be developed, things like that. But it's just like, we went from, you know, 90% of our new electricity um, energy sources being in development, being fossil fuels to, you know, 90% of it within 10 years being, it's all renewable energy coming online. Like there's very limited new development of, you know, coal plants or natural mm-hmm. gas or methane. That's good. Right. It's, it's fantastic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I mean, just in general, because our systems are, are so complex and interconnected here, I mean, modern society is just vulnerable. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, so I mean, and I think, sorry, sorry. no, no, I was just going to add a little point, but if you, 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 you go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I just want to say, I mean, we're seeing this right now. Right. So with, yeah, with baby formula. I mean, th- there's a lot of factors here. I mean, it's, it's a supply chain issue. It's a it's a monopoly issue. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, three companies that in the in the global mi- minority create the majority of the, the baby formula in Canada, United States. Um, but I mean, we're seeing with technology, 
with semiconductors, um, which I mean, right. again, a little bit of a monopoly issue, but not, you know, yeah. we'll, keep, we'll keep on the supply chain track here. Um, <laughs> textile production, you know, I'm, you know, again, I imagine the next few weeks we'll see impacts to different fashion companies, um, you know, whether or not, you know, fast fashion, bad, probably. Right. Um, yeah. To due to those heat waves in India and then South yeah. A- Southeast Asia, you know, just these disruptions they move so quickly beyond their initial point throughout the entire system. So, yeah, and and I think um, and I think you touched on this earlier, but also something that I, I I was thinking about while you were mentioning all this was how it's impacting the workers too. And so, like you said, with the heat waves in India, like it's forty seven degrees, people can't work. But let's say even like a place like here that's trying to compensate for maybe a lack of things that are being imported from other places, and then want to kind of overstretch their work workers hours and then maybe he's not giving them the proper compensation and then mental health is impacted and there's just and then there's also issues with food security and that too so it's just so many levels and layers that it captures and yeah oh absolutely and i mean that's a big part of it too is you know i can sit here and talk about supply chains and all that all day long but i mean really these things are so interconnected and i think you know we'll get to that a little bit here but they're so interconnected and you can't you can't say, oh, we need to bring more workers into the labor force so we can, you know, whether it's to purposely try and decrease wages or mm-hmm. whether it's to just make sure people are available to work to create these necessities that society needs. But you're trying to bring all these people in and then it's like, well, who's taking care of the children? Well, yeah. we, need, we need child care, right? So mm-hmm. like these things aren't, you know, separate issues. All of this connects together. And I think there's people, the system thinkers really, rep, really understand this. But I mean... You know, a, a lot of our, our political institutions don't. Everything's very mm-hmm. separate, right? And it's all very just, oh, I'm going to worry about my issue. I'm going to worry about my issue. There's yeah. no thinking. Put it together, right? That's that's really, I think, the crux of what a lot of this comes down to. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you talk about you talk about all this stuff and how it affects workers. I mean, so just diving into it a little bit. I mean, supply chains, climate change impacts public health, right? Yes. So, I mean, sure. this, is, this is all what your podcast is about, but... Just in general, I mean, let's think about some of the disruptions and the consequences of them, right? So, baby formula. So right now, I mean, Abbott yeah. had, I think it was Abbott in the states that had an issue and had to recall. I mean, that was forty percent. I, I want to wow. say of the baby formula in the states. Um, that's not supply that can easily be made up. Mm-hmm. And then there's other there's regulations that prevent like the import of it, and, and there's FDA regulations, things like that. Of course, in the United mm-hmm. States and Canada too, I presume. But I mean, it's it's hard to make up forty percent of a necessity. I mean, think about if you had, I don't know, say a major, I'm just trying to think of a major company here. Like think about if uh, a McDonald's went down. I'm not to say the McDonald's is, n- is necessary to our society, but I mean, that's a pretty big shock. Oh, right? yeah. That would be, you know, however many thousands of customers a day going to other fast food places, mm-hmm. whether or not they should be, that's a different question. But it's very much ingrained in our society, right? So, you know, think about if a, if a major supplier of vegetables went down, like, right? We don't yeah. really have to, I mean, we don't think that far because I mean, we think back to the atmospheric river in BC and it's like, wow, like, yeah, we absolutely need to start thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, baby formulas, I mean, semiconductors. I mean, right now, again, large companies control this, you know, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing yeah. Company. It's like 66% of you know, semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah. It's a really interesting company and really interesting situation here because I mean, so TSMC, a lot of their production facilities, some of their major ones actually rely on the water 
from uh, the public reservoirs or private reservoirs in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And those those reservoirs are filled. Sorry, I should say those reservoirs, the water from that is used to cool their facilities so they can produce these semiconductor chips. Okay. Um, that water comes from, you know, when they have these monsoon seasons and all that. Wow. Climate change is affecting the monsoon season. So right. I think it was 2019 or 2020, something like one of the their major reservoirs was down to 7% of its normal levels. Well, you can't run these factories with no water. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's so there's that element. And then you go further up that supply chain of semiconductors. And I mean, all the equipment that like companies like TSMC or Intel that use to create the semiconductors, those huge, massive, you know, hundred million dollar machines. Mm-hmm. All those machines are made by one company out of the Netherlands, ASML. So you have this, you know, these climate impacts, but then they also play off these monopolization impacts and how we set up our, our economic systems and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, mm-hmm. going going back to that, that public health bit here, there's a there's a great lecture on YouTube. Uh, I believe his name is Dr. Howard Frumpkin, um, titled Climate Change and Human Health. And I think he did it at Brown University. And it really dives into these these specifics. So, you know, heat, heat waves, how does that impact mm-hmm. human health, sea level rise, people moving around, um, severe weather effects? You know, really, when it comes down to it, like, what happens to people... You know, if there's people getting rehab or, or chemotherapy, yeah. what happens when the power goes out and can't come back on for, you know, two weeks? How much resiliency do we have? I mean, I think about the people down in, in Puerto Rico that were, you know, suffering over the last, what was that, three or four years ago when they had the major hurricane there and they mm-hmm. didn't get power or anything restored for like six or eight months for everybody. So how, wow. do, you, how do you run a society like that, right? Yeah. It's it's just not possible. There's a, there's a great, another great example when... Um, I forget which storm it was. Another hurricane hit um, the East Coast of the United States in New York there. So it, it, you know, obviously shut down all the electricity and everything like that because it was every, water was everywhere and it was flooded. But the, the backup system for electricity, for energy around the state was um, natural gas and, and gasoline and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the issue there was, well, a lot of those facilities to pump that gasoline or the natural gas relied on electricity to pump that. And so you have this, you know, quote unquote resiliency, but it's not really there, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, I mean, just big picture, right? Public health is a lot yeah. of things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm no health guy here, but I, I love like those those social determinants of health because they, they mm-hmm. really do aptly explain how interconnected our systems are. So, I mean, you could probably explain this better than I could, but I mean, you look at those like the economic stability, the, the healthcare and quality, the, the neighborhood and the built environment, and that, that mm-hmm. education access and quality. As you start to lose those, you start seeing major impacts on the health of communities. Because mm-hmm. I mean, like as you as you would know better than anyone, health isn't just hospitals, right? It's it's right. a rea- it's a reaction to those missing elements of those social determinants, mm-hmm. and and climate change impacts all of those. So it's mm-hmm. it's stressful to learn, you know, to actually be in a school when you're being forced to migrate or whatever, whether yeah. that's intranational or international you know we're seeing intranational migration already in the u.s and canada i mean i was in Yellowknife a few weeks ago and you know they're already having migration within the province or within the territory because you know people can't live in certain regions anymore because of the water because it's flooding all the time wow um you know you think about those international migrations those you know quote migrant caravans that we're all so scared about or the european refugee crisis i mean for god's sakes like they're people right yeah like yeah it's it's earth it's it's everybody's home mm-hmm. um so it's it's not all, all these things are 
related to climate change, not to say they're all 100% climate change, I can't say the migrant caravans are, or whatever, the terrible terminology, all these, these refugees that are fleeing for various reasons, it's not, they're not, it's not 100% climate change, but it's not 0% mm-hmm. either, right? Yes, for sure. So there's, I mean, there's so much here. Um, I mean, everything yeah. in public health, <laughs> anything around human health in general needs a functioning society to ensure stability. And that's, yeah. that's kind of the essence of, of human security versus like, traditional security like military intelligence and things like that so human security is really focused on like that food water shelter security and you know those stressors that make people then turn to to traditional security and and methods of violence i guess um Mm -hmm. i mean and philosophically we can debate whether violence is a good way to get you know achieve political ends but i mean you don't want that right you don't want people dying um Mm -hmm. i mean just in you know there's a great example the other day. NPR on their Instagram had a, a video of a, a bridge in Pakistan washing away. Um, and we don't, you know, you know, in, in Canada, United States, we're like, oh, you know, it's Pakistan. You know, you know, again, we're, you know, we're very rooted in, in white supremacy and, and racism. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's because of melting glaciers and greater water volumes due to climate change. You know, with that bridge being gone now, goods can't move. Emergency responders right. can't get to people. You know, people are late for work. There's more stresses, you know, let alone the financial cost to the governments and communities. Right. So, yeah. And I think what you were saying um, in terms of it's like you don't really realize all these different aspects to it until you're like actually told, OK, this is what the supply chain is. OK, this is what climate change is. This is how these two interact. And then these are all the social determinants of health. So when then when you're put in a situation where you can see how losing a produce company or certain losing certain access to ports because of certain climate um weather events, then you really understand, oh, this is how this can affect me. And this is how this is all related. And you start to see kind of those inter those webs of how they're just all connected to each other. And I think it's so this is a very like high income example, but someone being like, oh, I can't get my car yet. Or I was supposed to get my car in January, but um, it's now May and I still haven't gotten it because there's no chips. There's no chips for it. Referring to kind of these semiconductors. And it's like, oh, in the moment, like that's that's really hard and knowing. And maybe you really need this car to go to work and to be able to buy groceries for your children, you know? And like, so like that is also a level of public health that's affected. And there's just so many layers, but, um, well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're on the right track there, but you also got to remember this also goes back to how we set up our societies, right? I mean, if you're in, you know, certain parts in Europe or in Asia, you're like, why do I care that I can't get a car right now? Like I just hop on the train or hop on the bus or I just walk or I just bike. Right. Mm-hmm. And in, mm-hmm. in Canada, United States, we've set up and in these parts of Western Europe, we've set up our societies later when cars were becoming a thing, when, you know, horse-drawn carriages were becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. And we just said, oh, let's just put 25 lanes of asphalt down and hope it works out. And it's like, it doesn't like it, yeah. it's the least efficient way of transportation. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's like we, we set it up and it, and it now requires people to have those cars and spend yes. 40, 50, $100,000, you know, on these cars and spend $20,000 a year on upkeep. And I'm like, just bike or just yeah. walk. Right. And I know that's a very, like, that's a very, I mean, I'm a very able person. So I'm able to do that. And I recognize those people that aren't, mm-hmm. but there are so many people that, you know, you're driving three kilometers to go get groceries. And I'm like, you could, you know, hop on the bus. If bus service was better, you could bike. If you had mm-hmm. protected bike lanes, you could walk. If it was a peaceful walk and cars weren't speeding by you going 80 kilometers yeah. an hour. Right. So, but I mean, I think you, you touched on a really good point there is we, we don't really understand how these things are going to affect us until they start mm-hmm. getting closer to us. 
And this is, I mean, that's something that my, my research actually really, that was a focus of a lot of the interviews that I did with a lot of executives is that they didn't really, I mean, they took climate change seriously, but it was kind of like they were kind of being forced to, whether by social pressure or insurance companies. Yeah. And what really made them like do a double take was that, that atmospheric river that washed out infrastructure in BC. That was really like, they were like, holy, like, we know, we, we expect, you know, every, you know, so often there's going to be labor disruptions with, you know, labor strikes and things like that, where those, that skilled labor, you know, they should be earning their two, $300,000 a year to offload those container ships, but they don't expect for them to lose all access to the busiest mm-hmm. port in Canada. Right. So you, you right. lose, you lose all that access and you're like, okay, what do I do? Yeah. Right. It's, you know, it's goods that now have to be shipped and up through the United States. Well, what does that look like for customs and all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Or it's, you have to wait three, four, whatever, three weeks or whatever until, you know, a road can be reopened so that we can navigate a, a container around so that we can get food to somewhere or, you know, computers or some kind of random thing that we definitely don't need, but we all mm-hmm. desire. Um, so, I mean, I think this just in general, I mean, what you're kind of, you're kind of asking here is, you know, what are organizations doing, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Big so, question. So big question. we know their issues and yeah, what are they doing about it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there is a lot of different factors here. So I'll start with one thing here. There's, again, I spoke to it a little bit throughout this already, this podcast already, but there's really two things. There's two sides to this. So there's adaptation and there's mitigation. The terms are often used interchangeably and and I use them interchangeably all the time, but Mm -hmm. how I try to set them out of my mind is, is as follows. So mitigation is really reducing emissions, right? So that's your you know, reducing how much you're driving, reducing how much gas you're using, all that kind of stuff to reduce the amount of carbon you're putting in the atmosphere. For large companies, that's, you know, everything from reducing the amount you're driving, the gasoline you're using, to reducing how much carbon emissions your factories are putting out, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically mitigation is essentially reducing the need for future adaptation. Now, adaptation, really, those are the changes to ensure preparedness for the future. So that's your, you know, facility um improvements you know you're really engineering your infrastructure to be better right mm-hmm. so that's, right. Th- okay. those are your kind of two things there um mitigation adaptation for the most part of what i look at i'm looking at adaptation because i mean we know what we need to do for mitigation we know we have to reduce yeah. emissions like that's not yes right it's not a it's not a hard conversation to have i mean it is for some people mm-hmm. but it's really we know what we have to do yeah so when we talk about when i talk about what organizations are doing i tend to focus on the adaptation side but there's an interesting part of this in which like those mitigations there, how we're reducing carbon emissions, that's very hard to measure. It's, you know, who confirms the carbon accounting of emissions of all these organizations? Who confirms how much methane is going out, how much pollutants are going out? And there's, you know, there's some fantastic journalism on this. You know, mm-hmm. you look at various companies around the world, and it's like, oh, they report this. And then these journalists go and they go with, you know, whether it's a heat gun or whatever, and they say, well, no, you're putting out. 20 times the amount of methane into the air or whatever, right? Yeah. So there's there's some talk about this, you know, this carbon accounting and how you really look at emissions um, at that like intergovernmental, that international organization mm-hmm. level. But I don't think there's any standards yet. So I just want to put that out there because I think that's a very important thing. And that's something that was referenced a lot of my interviews is these companies can do what they want, but, you know, their competitors are out there and they're saying, well, we don't need to do that or we're going to do that, but we're going to measure it in a different way. And it's like, it's I kind of laugh because if there's any listeners here that know about the whole 
how Uber measures how much money they make. It's it's a community adjusted EBITDA, uh, earnings before interest, um, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, and it's completely. This is a lot of business speak here, but it's completely made up. Like it's it's basically hmm. made up to show how much money they're supposedly making, but in a traditional like net income um, sense, they're not making any money. But in this community hmm. adjusted, they are right. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like how do you measure these things and who regulates how you measure these things and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, but that's that's that's, that's a fascinating sorry. part of it. No, you go. Yeah, please. that is fascinating. I'm just so surprised that. There's no standards. And I mean, maybe it's because we didn't really realize this was a problem. I mean, I'm sure people did, but it wasn't as vocalized until later that this was such a big problem. So we just started off with no standards. But I just think 